and good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Just checking to make sure you're all awake. Um, it's good to be back. Um, Marie and I have missed you, and uh, we want to thank Pastor Bruce for inviting us to come this Sunday morning. Um, he, of course, assigned me Hebrews 6, which is the most difficult chapter in the book of Hebrews. He insists it was my choice. I'm sure he's wrong, but uh, I've been listening to his sermons, and uh, I think uh, I should just step down and let him do this, but since he's had a bad week, we'll, we'll leave him alone. Uh, glad you all made it out in the snow today. This passage that I've been asked to deal with is... I said possibly the most difficult chapter in the book, although next Sunday when Pastor Bruce has to deal with Melchizedek, uh, that may be a challenge as well. This passage has caused many Christians uh, troubled thoughts and restless nights, and you'll see that in a moment, and perhaps it's true of you. People find themselves asking these kinds of questions as they look at this chapter. Am I genuinely converted? Am I really a believer? Have I been born again? Now those questions come up from time to time because the accuser wants us to ask those questions. He wants us to doubt and today I hope we can put some of those concerns to rest. I think the recipients of Hebrews had some of these same questions. Pastor Bruce has already emphasized that we don't know to whom he is writing. And that's the case. Uh, Jewish Christians apparently, uh, but very little more than that. I do think as we make our way through the book, we find hints as to the audience that he's addressing these words to. Uh, let me mention a few of them. Uh, these were people, some of whom were careless of their heritage. You'll look in Hebrews 2 verse 5, you've already, uh, 2 verse 3, excuse me, you've already looked at this. We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Are you thinking about what you've learned? Apparently, there were those in the church to whom the author of Hebrews was writing, and he, like the recipients, is anonymous. There were those in the church who were drifting away because they were not paying careful attention to what they'd heard. And you've already thought about that. There's a second thought. I think that many people in the church were underdeveloped because of slothfulness or laziness or lethargy. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 5, which you looked at last Sunday. We have much to say to you about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Isn't that true? I can remember times in college cramming for a test the next day and reading a page. And when I'm done reading the page, I thought, what did I just read? It just didn't register. I was half asleep, my mind wasn't focused. Uh, what about 
the Bible? What about listening on a Sunday morning when your preacher preaches? What about taking notes? What about spending time studying? These people were undeveloped, some of them, because of slothfulness. But let's move on. Also, this crowd, some of them at least, were indifferent to Christian assembly. They didn't bother to join with their brothers and sisters. In Hebrews 10, he has told them to spur one another on toward love and good works. And uh, he doesn't just say, maintain the status quo. He said, encourage those around you to do more for the gospel, to more for God. And then he adds in verse 25, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Jesus is coming again. And since we know that to be true, what are we doing to help one another be more godly people? And part of the way we do that is by joining with each other on Sunday morning. Well, those three, but there are some others. Uh, Apparently, they were pressured to give in by the demands of daily life. In Hebrews 10, he talks of their suffering and insults and persecution. He reminds them of imprisonment and loss of property. Some really bad things have happened to these people. And then he adds in verse 35, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Life was tough. Are you going to let the problems of life, the things that perplexed you this last week, the things that are facing you, are you going to let that push you away from God? Apparently, there was some evidence of that in this church. Oh, there are two other thoughts. They were weary from the struggle or just morally lax. Chapter 12, verse 12 says, Therefore, strengthen feeble arms and weak knees. What's going on here? Were they physically weak? Were they spiritually weak? Uh, We don't know for sure. Uh, Is this a moral issue? Is it just all the problems they're facing? We need to do that for each other. Who do you know whose feeble knees you can strengthen? Would it take a, a letter or an email or a hug or just a word of encouragement. And finally, it appears that some to whom the author was writing were influenced by false teaching. In chapter 13, verse nine, we read, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Don't get hung up on legalism. Somebody's telling you there are certain things you have to do which are not biblical. By the way, we sang that song a moment ago, my one defense, my righteousness. I don't like that. Because my one defense is not my righteousness. My one defense is his righteousness. And I am fairly confident that the author of that hymn knew that and probably intended that. But if you take it at face value, that phrase suggests, God, I'm good enough. I don't need your help. My one defense, my righteousness. No, my one defense, his righteousness. I didn't write the hymn, so I have no right to change the wording. But I do remind you that it is important. So Hebrews is addressed to a forgetful people 
who tend to be lazy and are irregular in church attendance. They are overwhelmed by circumstances, are in need of encouragement, and are dabbling with untruth. That seems to be the crowd to whom he's writing. And some of those characteristics are true of us. Certainly all of these characteristics are probably true of us at some time or another. To such people, Hebrews 6 is addressed. Hebrews 6 is a call to lead a holy life. I want to call it a limitless holy life because I know how popular that word is in the sermons that Bruce has been preaching. But uh, you'll have to bear with me. Uh, Our God is a holy God. Do we have any doubts about that? When chapter 2 was unpacked, we learned about the limitless holiness of God. God is absolutely free from anything wicked or evil. God's motives are always right, even though we do not understand them. My wife and I were talking in the car as we drove over here this morning about uh, circumstances surrounding some of our friends. And she looked over and smiled and said, you know, someday we're going to discover what God had in mind. And we didn't expect it. We didn't know that was going to happen as a result of this. And that's so true. We look at the circumstances of life and we extrapolate. and We say, oh, well, this is where God is headed. But let's be completely honest. We don't know what God is doing. Oh, we have the broad outline. But as to the specifics, God keeps his own counsel. And every day we are surprised if we pay attention. God is absolutely holy. Do you recall the first request in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, what is it? Hallowed be your name. Isn't it funny? We take most of Scripture and we use modern language for it, but some iconic parts of scripture we keep the old king james hallowed be your holy be your name that's a prayer jesus addressed god as holy father in john 17 i also think of that occasion in isaiah chapter 6 where isaiah hears the uh, angels cherubim they're called Call to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Nowhere in the Bible do I find the phrase, merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord God Almighty. Nowhere do I find the words, love, love, love is the Lord God Almighty. But three times we're told he's holy. And this is not the only place in scripture where it is said. I am not minimizing his mercy or his love. But I remind you how important is his holiness. Never, never forget that. I think also the four living creatures in Revelation chapter 4. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And because God is holy, he expects his followers to be holy. Peter, who knew a bit about being unholy, writes in 1 Peter 1.15, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, and he quotes Leviticus 11, perhaps the book that deals most with holiness in the whole Bible, be holy because I am holy. That's his call to us, to be holy as he is holy. Hebrews 10.10 will later read, we have been made holy by the sacrifice of Jesus once for all. Made holy, positional sanctification. And then later in that same chapter, because by one sacrifice, verse 14, he has made perfect those who are being made holy. There's a declaration at the beginning and there's a process that goes on. He's continually giving us a spiritual bath. He's continually making us holy. That is his intention. We can short circuit the process. So Hebrews 6 explicates the contours of a holy life. Here we go. Four principles. Four. Holiness requires a strong foundation. One of the things I appreciate about Awana is how helpful it is in developing a strong foundation in young people. Holiness requires a strong foundation. Secondly, holiness requires persistence to the end. You ask if someone's a believer who has ignored God for 30 years, and my answer is no. Because they haven't persisted to the end. Third principle, holiness requires a fruitful life. That is, there needs to be evidence. That's what the book of James is all about. How do you express your faith? By being fruitful. And finally, holiness and this is the real key, requires a trustworthy God. I I can't build a strong foundation or persist to the end or live a fruitful life without God. Can't be done. It's impossible. Let's take that first thought. Holiness requires a strong foundation. Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, let us, this is a good teacher speaking, Move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ, the ABCs, and be taking forward to maturity. And and then he lists six things that represent that foundation. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Repentance and faith. Verse 2, instruction about cleansing rites, think baptism. The laying on of hands the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. These are basic. These are part of what is involved in beginning the Christian life. And God permitting, we will do so. Now in chapter five, and Pastor Bruce made the point a few weeks ago that the divisions between chapters and verses in Hebrews is very arbitrary. And sometimes 
It's not inspired. Let's agree with that. It was the 13th or 14th century. Somebody decided it would be helpful to have verses and chapters. But many times the thought is broken in the wrong place. And that's true. In chapter 5, the author has rebuked his readers for their arrested development as Christians. He's told them to grow up. Now he challenges the to do something about that in verse chapter 6. He lists the basics, the ABCs of Christian doctrine, the first principles, the basic truths. And then he says, let's move on to maturity. Let's go beyond these basic things. But let's not ignore the basics. When you build a house, you start with the foundation, and when you start constructing the house, you don't remove the foundation. That would be foolish. Or when you're building a foundation, you do it well. Something the construction experts in Turkey failed to do. Many of the buildings that fell down during the recent earthquake were built in a shabby, shoddy way. There wasn't a good foundation. You see... Our author doesn't say abandon the foundation, but build on it. You can't build a sound structure without a stable foundation. So repentance and faith are essential to the Christian life. We we must turn from sin, that's the negative, that's repentance, and turn to Jesus, that's the positive, that's faith. These are the first actions of a new believer. And then cleansing rites or baptism and laying on of hands speak of incorporation within the body of Christ in a public way, clearly seen again and again in the book of Acts. And then convictions about resurrection from the dead look to the future now of Jesus in the past and of us in the future and eternal judgment where everyone will be judged or basic to our faith. All this is basic. Convictions that must not be ignored. These truths must not be forgotten, but there's more. These basics can be seen in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Do you remember? Acts chapter 2, Peter preached. 3,000 were converted. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. He preached that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. On that day, he told how Jesus died for all. How he is now risen and exalted over all. And the response was what? Repentance and faith and baptism. All the basics. This was the starting point. Ahead of them was the road to spiritual maturity. And later on in Acts chapter 2, we read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were moving on based on the foundation they already had. And think of the rest of the New Testament as a school of theology, as they began to learn more and more about what it meant to walk with Jesus. Verse 1 says, let us go on to maturity. Verse 3 says, this we will do if God permits. And the reminder here is that without divine assistance, none of this is possible. Only with the help of God can this be done. And every believer, every one of us 
He's called to lay a proper foundation and then to move on from there. A poor foundation can lead to disaster. So principle number one, holiness requires a strong foundation. Principle number two, holiness requires persistence to the end. Let me pick it up in verse four. And by the way, very simply, only those who continue in the Christian way are saints. I am, of course, troubled by the fact that one branch of Christendom uh, chooses to make certain people saint so-and-so and saint so-and-so and saint so-and-so, forgetting the fact that all of us, according to Scripture, are saints who walk with Jesus. Listen to verse 4. It is impossible... Three times that word is used in the book of Hebrews. For those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who's being described here? Who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and have fallen away. By the way, that's not the word apostasy. It's simply the word fallen by the wayside. Some determine that's apostasy, but that's not the normal word for apostasy and have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Why? To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. It is horrendous what such a one is doing. This is what the lawless and godless mob did on that first Good Friday. Remember? Crucify him. Crucify him. To them, that day, he was the one who was despised and rejected by men. They have abandoned his way. They have despised his truth. And they have spurned his life. That is what has happened. Our author drives home his point with an agricultural picture. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. Yay, says every farmer in the place. And verse 8 says, but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. And somebody says, well, The author doesn't know about our modern methods of burning fields to clean out the weeds and get rid of the stubble so that we can plant something and it'll be a fruitful crop. Of of course he did. In fact, that was not uncommon in the first century. They did burn fields. But the reference here is not to that. The reference here is to something that's being rejected by God. Well, who are the people being described here? Are they believers? Are they fake believers? Is this a hypothetical case? Bad things will happen if you behave like this. You can go to the systematic theologies, you can go to the commentaries, you can read sermons and the positions of Christian scholars of very great ability 
and great dependability are all over the map with this issue. I just want to begin there. Um, well, how are they described? Let me tell you where I'm coming from on this. They're described in five ways. And, and may I say the five characteristics that are being mentioned here are, are, are missing one thing. The word holy is not mentioned here. Just, just keep that in mind. Just tuck that away. Notice, they've once been enlightened. What does that mean? Well, in the second century, this is often a reference to baptism. Baptism is often called enlightenment in that second century in the early church. The simple fact is they knew the truth and they had claimed to have turned from the darkness of sin to the light of Christ. Does that make them a Christian? who have tasted the heavenly gift. Martin Luther deals with this and he says, um, well, tasted means just a sip. It means they didn't drink it deeply. But I would remind you, and you've already passed this passage, in Hebrews 2.9, we're told that Jesus tasted death for everyone. And in that case, no one would say he just took a sip. Same word being used, by the way, just so it's clear. Tasted the heavenly gift. We don't know exactly what that is. It appears to be some activity of the spirit. Uh, these were people who lived and benefited from church associations. And uh, perhaps it's a reference to the Lord's Supper, just as the first is a reference to baptism, perhaps, and the second to the Lord's Supper. Think about that who have shared in the Holy Spirit, that is, benefited from the gifts of the Spirit. Here's someone who has an intimate knowledge of Christianity. They were deeply entrenched in the life of the church. As far as everyone around them was concerned, they're believers. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying that's what these words tell us. For who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. It doesn't say they tasted the Word of God. but they tasted the goodness of the word of God. But, but have they accepted it? By the way, the scriptures are a big deal in the book of Hebrews. Every chapter has some reference to Holy Scripture. The author cares about scripture. And finally, who have tasted the goodness of the powers of the coming age and probably a reference to miracles. And as we read through the New Testament, we read about deliverances from demonic, read the Gospels. We read about healings. We read about Jesus, uh, well, and Paul, I'm sorry, and Peter, uh, bringing people back from the dead. Extraordinary. I repeat, the word holy is not used in any of these descriptions. But, but I want to take you to two other verses in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 11, again, a verse you've already touched on. Both the one who makes people holy and the one who are holy are of the same family. The person who's being made holy by Jesus is in his family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Now apply that. And perhaps more important, Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely. 
And that word completely means for all time, forever. Those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. What does that tell you? I find myself thinking that this description suggests someone like Judas Iscariot who lived and worked with Jesus for months. I also think of Simon Magus, a character we read about in the eighth chapter of Acts, a, a pagan exorcist, healer, and wonder worker. And by the way, read the book of Revelation. Satan can work miracles. Yes, he can. We call them false miracles, but they're miracles nonetheless. I go back to the uh, wise men that were part of Pharaoh's court who were able to uh, do some of the things that Moses and Aaron did. But they couldn't turn them off. Uh, back to Simon. Simon himself believed and was baptized. Acts 8.13, it's the ministry of Philip. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Wow, this is pretty exciting. But his faith was not genuine. He offered Peter, who came down to confirm the fact that these people were alive, alive in Christ, he offered Peter money to receive the ability to distribute the Holy Spirit. And Peter said in Acts 8.31, you have no part or share in this ministry. He's talking to Simon. Because your heart is not right before God. So who are these people in Hebrews 6? Let me make four comments. The first is this. I believe they had just glimmerings of light. Secondly, there is no evidence in the rest of the New Testament Christians can abort their salvation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't forget those brilliant words of Paul from Romans chapter 8. Third, reassurance is offered to his readers in the verses I will read in a moment. And finally, fourth, this is a Severe warning. No one's faith is genuine who does not continue to the end. That, I submit, is the teaching of Hebrews. And using an agricultural metaphor of good land and bad land, we're told that a good crop is essential to a good field. Our author tells us that godly people will be fruitful to the end. Let's move on. Principle number one, holiness requires a strong foundation. Principle number two, holiness requires persistence to the end. Principle number three, holiness requires a fruitful or fertile life. Fertile. Commendable conduct is the most eloquent exposition of our faith. I didn't write that. I found that somewhere, but I like it. Commendable conduct is the most eloquent exposition of our faith. By their fruits you will know them. We are called to progress along the Christian way or suffer 
disaster. Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 12 talks like this. Even though we speak like this, dear friends or beloved, by the way, the only time in the book he uses that word, I think he was a bit more severe as an individual than John was in 1 John, who constantly calls the people beloved. But here it is. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. You see, he doesn't doubt their salvation. He believes they are converted. God is not unjust. Now there's an understatement. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have continued to help his people and continue to help them. How do you love God? Who doesn't need anything from you? By loving others. By loving others, you express your love for God. Here is evidence of Christian transformation. And what I appreciate is he does not exaggerate the defection of the few or minimize the love of the many. Verse 11 goes on to say, we want, very strong word, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. Because you see, the goal of faith is in the future. So that what you hope for may be fully realized. And then he adds in verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy. Uh, by the way, that same word is used in the fifth chapter and is translated slow to learn. Lazy, slow to learn. But to imitate those who through faith, read Hebrews 11, and patience, which literally means undismayed in difficulties, inherit what has been promised. Even though our author has deep concern for those to whom he is writing, he expresses no doubt about their conversion. He's concerned. But, but he applauds their Christian service and speaks of the love they show to others. And he speaks of it as love shown to God. And when you reach out to someone else, when you help lift someone else's burdens, as Galatians 6 reminds you, you should do. You're expressing love to God. This reminds me of the words of Teresa of Calcutta. She speaks of the poor and the sick as Jesus in disguise. What an interesting way of speaking. Jesus himself said in a prophecy of the final judgment in Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Really? I needed clothes and you clothed me. This is the king speaking at the final judgment. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Well, Jesus' followers interrupted him and said, we don't understand. Please explain. And so Jesus said in verse 40 of Matthew 25, the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When I express love to someone else, I express love to Jesus. Do, do you remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet in the upper room? Interesting. There's 
I think the Quakers today still wash feet on a regular basis. I think Salvation Army might do it from time to time as well. We don't wash feet. We don't need to. But we need to think of something. And you can think about it as I go on. That is directly related to that kind of thing. Apparently his disciples had come to the Last Supper with a bad attitude. There's some evidence they'd been quarreling on their journey. So the customary washing of feet, which probably was shared among the disciples, was ignored. And so Jesus took matters into his own hands and treated the whole event as an acted parable. He cleansed the feet of his disciples of the twelve over the protestations of Peter. And then he said in John 13, verse 13, verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And they needed to, because they walked on dusty roads with open sandals. I have set you an example that you should do what I have done for you. Whose feet have you washed this week? What have you done to help someone else to be a comfort to them? It appears that the Christians addressed by the book of Hebrews were living out Jesus' admonition in spite of their flaws. Yeah, they were washing one another's feet. And I wonder if we're living out Jesus' challenge. Are we taking care of each other? Are we characterized by growing godly behavior? Are we described in Galatians 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is, remember those nine things? Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. That's what the text says. So principle number one, holiness requires a strong foundation. Do you have one? Principle number two, holiness requires persistence to the end. Principle number three, holiness is a fruitful life. And finally, holiness requires a trustworthy God. Only a holy God can produce holiness in us. Can't happen any other way. Listen to the rest of Hebrews 6. I'm just going to read these verses with a comment or two. When God made his promise to Abraham, oh, now we're in the Old Testament. Well, what did he promise to Abraham in Genesis 12? He promised that he would be heir of a great nation. Abraham was 75 years old. Really? If God made that kind of promise to me today and I buzzed past 75 a little while ago, I would be speechless. 
when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. He wanted Abraham to know this was going to happen, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently 25 years before Isaac was born, Abraham received what was promised, that is, a promised son. He had tried some other shenanigans before all that, but that wasn't God's plan. You need to remember the promise to Abraham went far beyond a son because it culminated in Jesus. But that's another part of the story. Verse 16, people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Can you trust God? When God speaks, it is an authoritative word guaranteed by the highest authority. Abraham had faith in a God who could not fail. Now think about this. Abraham was too old. Too old. He patiently waited 25 years and then many more years before grandchildren came. And then God told him to sacrifice his son. Yet he found God trustworthy. And without argument, he did as God said. Verse 17 goes on to say, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose clear. To the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. The whole point of what Hebrews is saying here is that God can be trusted and God wants us to know that he can be trusted. Verse 18 says, God did this so that by two unchangeable or immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Can you trust God? You know, I said it earlier, if you look only at the sinful world, if you look only at the world around us, you'll be gripped by despair. More deaths in St. Paul last night. I read somewhere that a, officially 100,000 Russian soldiers have died going into the Ukraine and that 30,000 Ukrainians have died. I have no clue if those numbers are anywhere near accurate. But I just know the human carnage is despicable. Yeah, if you just look at the world, you can be gripped by despair without the hope that God gives. Read the book of Ecclesiastes, but especially read the final chapter. We have this hope, verse 19 says, which is a stabilizing force, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It, hope, enters the sanctuary behind the curtain. Remember the curtain? Pastor Bruce has talked about this already. The curtain that divides the holy place from the holy of holies, which was torn in two at the moment of Jesus' death on the cross opening the way into the inner sanctuary. Our hope is in what Christ has done. And, and it's an anchor. This is the only time the word anchor is used in the New Testament. 
what's interesting is that if you ever get a chance to go to Rome and walk through the catacombs, the tunnels under the city where the Christians used to hide, you find the anchor symbol all over the place. The fish symbol and the dove symbol and the anchor symbol are very characteristic of the early Christian church. And finally, verse 20 says, and we're talking about the inner sanctuary, where our forerunner Jesus, he's called the pioneer of our salvation in Hebrews 2. He's the first. He prepares the way to glory. Where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A shadowy Old Testament figure, which I am delighted I don't have to deal with today, but that Bruce will deal with next week in chapter 7. A remarkable story. Jesus represents us before the Father. He pleads his own righteousness, not our righteousness. We, as the reformers like to say, live an exchanged life. We have given him our sin. He has given us his righteousness. Jesus has opened the way to enter God's glorious presence. And so we come boldly, now in prayer, then in person. We who are being made holy. So please, will you tuck away these principles in your mind? Holiness requires a strong foundation. Have you built a strong foundation? Holiness requires persistence to the end as you move on past that foundation into the life of faith. Holiness requires a fruitful life. We need to demonstrate to the world what the Christ life is like. And finally, holiness requires a trustworthy God. How could we possibly be holy were it not for a trustworthy God? Now this is the counsel of Hebrews 6 to those who are, listen, forgetful, lazy, irregular in church attendance, troubled by circumstances, needing encouragement and being led astray. That's the kind of people to whom he's writing. Not all of them, but some of them. And not all of you, but some of you. And all of us at some point or another become, I could go through the list again, forgetful. C.S. Lewis once wrote, you'd be disappointed if I didn't quote Lewis. <laughs> C.S. Lewis once said, and this line comes from his book, The Problem of Pain, probably one of his most difficult books to understand, and a book I found Steve reading the first Sunday I showed up here a couple years ago, so I'm very impressed. But in The Problem of Pain, Lewis writes, the holier a man is, the more he is aware of his sinfulness. It is true that the closer to God we come, the more his light illumines what's going on in our lives. And the more our repentance grows. I encourage you to continue to study this book and to remember 
that your defense is his righteousness. Father, I pray now that as we close this hour, you would uh, be pleased to work in the hearts and lives of your people to your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor David, for coming and sharing from God's word and throwing me under the bus. Uh, before we before we end, a couple of things just to share with you briefly. Uh, if if you are interested, as he ta- as Pastor David talked about uh, loving those around us, Alicia is putting together a team to do a community breakfast, and they'll be meeting in the living room after the service to talk about putting on that community breakfast. That's a great practical way to start start doing that. Um, also, mark your calendars for the game feed coming up. Um, that's Sunday, March twenty sixth. That's a great opportunity especially if you have somebody that you know in your life who does not know the Lord. Um, that'll be a great opportunity for them to come and hear, and hear the gospel. And then lastly, we do have uh, coming up this Saturday night, the prayer night. Uh, I believe marks 12 years of Saturday night prayer. So if you haven't come in a while, I would encourage you. Yeah, we can. Absolutely. Um, I would encourage you to come. Uh, in the month of March especially is a great time to, to go and we can... Pray together as we celebrate that. As we end this morning, from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.